Hello and welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidlin, filling in today for your regular host, Susie Weisman, who will be back soon. Today we're talking about what is shaping up to be one of the most important labor negotiations in U.S. history, which might culminate in one of the largest strikes in U.S. history. I'm talking about the contract involving more than 340,000 workers at UPS, or United Parcel Service, who are members of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or IBT. Their contract expires on July 31st, and Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien has vowed that UPS Teamsters will walk out on August 1st if there is no deal by then. UPS Teamsters are fighting to address issues that affect all kinds of workers far beyond UPS. Eroding pay, two-tier wages, contingent work, forced overtime and unpredictable scheduling, management harassment and surveillance, and health and safety, particularly around extreme weather, just to name a few. Talks broke down on July 5th, and Teamsters have been turning up the heat around the country with practice picket lines and mass rallies. We'll get the latest on what's going on at UPS from three UPS Teamsters who have been directly involved in mobilizing around the contract and preparing for a strike. They will also give us some context about what has led to this historic contract fight and the key role that rank-and-file Teamster reformers have played in all of it. All of that and more when our program returns in just a moment. Hello again and welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm your guest host, Barry Eidlin, filling in this week for Susie Weissman. This is my first time guest hosting the show, so I should tell you a bit about who I am. I'm an associate professor of sociology at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. My research focuses on labor, class, politics, and social change. I wrote a book called Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, and write regularly on labor and politics for Jacobin, The Washington Post, and The Globe and Mail, among other venues. Prior to going into academia, I worked for several years in the labor movement, mostly with Teamsters for a Democratic Union, or TDU. While it has only started getting mainstream media attention recently, a battle has been brewing for over a year at shipping giant UPS that could culminate in one of the largest strikes in U.S. history just a few weeks from now. Media coverage of UPS contract negotiations so far has focused mostly on stoking fears of how disruptive a possible strike would be for business and consumers. But on today's show, we dig deeper into the issues driving the contract mobilization and the historic forces that have led us to this point. To do that, I'm joined by three longtime UPS Teamsters who have decades of experience fighting the company and who have been deeply involved in the current contract fight. Carlos Silva is a 25-year Teamster, member of Local 572 in Carson, California, and a trustee on the International Steering Committee of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, or TDU. He works as a package handler and driver out of the UPS hub in Gardena, California. 
McCarthy Boston is an 18-year Teamster, member of Teamsters Local 639 in Washington, D.C., and also a trustee on the TDU International Steering Committee. She worked for many years as a part-time preloader at UPS and now works as a union representative for Local 639. Finally, Greg Kerwood is a 19-year Teamster and a member of Local 25 in Boston, which is also the home local of current Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. He is also a member of the TDU International Steering Committee. He works as a package car driver out of the Somerville, Massachusetts Center. Carlos Silva, Greg Kerwood, Carthy Boston, welcome. Thank you, Barry. What's going on, Barry? Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Looking forward to our conversation. So obviously this UPS contract is a big deal, but a lot of people probably don't know a whole lot about it and probably don't even know a lot about really what goes on at UPS. So first of all, I just want to talk about the size of this contract. Now, most listeners here are probably familiar with the ubiquitous UPS drivers and their brown trucks and brown uniforms. But of course, UPS workers are far more than that. So can you just describe for me who works at UPS? So how many workers are we talking about? What kinds of work do they do? Where are they located? And so on. Anybody? I'll just start Go it for off. it, Carlos. All right. So, you know, like you said, everybody knows the guy in the brown uniform out there on the street delivering the packages with the shorts, right? Everybody knows that guy. If you're in California. But, yeah, definitely in California, right? I was one of them, you know, I'm still are, always wear my shorts. But anyways, there's also people inside the hub, which is the warehouse. The hub is what we call the warehouse at UPS. You know, there is the loaders, there's the unloaders, there's the solders. There's many people, many, there's combo jobs. There's things you can do at UPS. Nobody knows them. Nobody knows what is behind that door, right? And the amount of employees that are at UPS, it all varies, right? Like in my hub, in my warehouse, there's about 500 members. You know, there's... Across the nation, there's plenty of them that got large, like 10,000 members and whatnot. But that's pretty much what UPS is, you know. I guess somebody said, or Brian said it, the unsung heroes, right? The guys who load the trucks. Without them, without the unloaders, they're shorter than the loaders. There's no way that that guy in the brown shorts is going to deliver those packages. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's no way that those packages are going to go from place A to B. There's no way that's going to happen without them. But nobody sees that. And that's, I think, one of the main reasons why we're fighting for. We're fighting for them, you know. So that's a little bit about what UPS is and is about. Yeah. And we're talking 340,000 workers across literally every zip code in all 50 U.S. states, right? So this is just to give listeners a sense of the scale here. And, you know, there, there has been more media coverage going on recently about the UPS contract, mostly focused on, you know, oh, will you be able to get your packages and trying to sort of um, frighten people into sort of the chaos that will ensue after a UPS strike. You're also hearing stuff about, you know, how package car drivers can make like 95 grand a year, how all UPS workers, even part-timers get good health benefits and pensions. But there's probably a lot that 
most people don't know about working at UPS. So maybe, Greg, can you talk a bit about what it's like to work at UPS? Well, working at UPS is certainly a unique experience, would be the most polite way that I could put it. It is incredibly uh, intense. The company is very numbers-driven. Everything is based on numbers. We're dealing with a very physical job, regardless of which job you're doing. For the most part, it's very physical. It's very fast-paced. It's very intense. We do a lot of work. Certainly, the part-timers do a lot, a lot of work in a very short period. Drivers, it's more of a marathon where it's a lot of work and it's stretched out over a full 10, 10 hour, 11 hour day. Most days we have to deal with the weather, uh, heat, cold, rain, snow. It's hard to describe to someone if you haven't been in there and been through it. Uh, I always tell people I could tell you stories for a week and you still wouldn't get the full brunt of what it's like to work at UPS. It's just, it's, it's, there's a, there's an approach from the company that is quasi militaristic for whatever that comes from. And they have an attitude of the best way to get the most out of your employees is to push and drive them and treat them as if they're replaceable as opposed to reward them for doing a good job and uh, encourage them uh, to do so. That mentality is pervasive. I've never met someone who said it isn't that way where they work. It's it's not a good way to do things. It's not a good environment to work in. It's sort of the 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 unheard truth that people don't see and don't know the story behind that box that they get on their front porch. So there may be the there may be some truth to the ninety five grand a year salary, but it comes at a price. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, if you're a package car driver who's full-time, there is some truth to that salary. Um, as Sean has said repeatedly, you are working your tail off for that $95,000. you are working overtime. Uh, that's That $95,000 is not 40 hours a week. That's including overtime. Uh, and that's also a fraction of the employees at UPS. The majority of our employees are part-time. Uh, they're not getting anywhere near that kind of compensation, although they do get benefits and do have a pension, uh, not the same pension as the full-timers. But uh, again, they're also working their tails off for a much, 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 much smaller compensation. And it wouldn't they wouldn't have those benefits if it weren't for Teamster. Yeah. That's correct. Nothing is given to us by UPS. Definitely. I was going to say, to put it in perspective, you know, in, uh, in Onloader, UPS wants them to unload, offload a thousand packages per hour, right? And a loader, they want one guy, one person, one teamster member to load seven to six trucks, you know, for one person. That's over 150 packages each truck. Just to put it out there so people understand the dimension of what UPS is asking from us, from all the workers inside. And that's in three and a half hours. And that's exactly in three and a half hours. They're starting late. They don't want to give them more than three and a half. After two and a half, they want to send them home. You know what I mean? There's a lot of pressure, like Greg said, a lot of harassment. They watch you. They intimidate you. They just want you to be super, super, super productive, but they don't want to compensate you for it. 
Yeah. And Carthy, so you you worked as a part-timer for many years. Can you talk a bit more about that experience of working as a part-timer at UPS inside? I mean, I can say Greg described it all as gruesome. It's 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 gruesome. I mean, in the summer times, the buildings are extremely hot. I worked inside and I worked outside. I worked in two facilities. So I worked in New Jersey and I worked in DC area um, in Maryland. And I can say to you that the conditions are horrible. I mean, you work in a truck all day, you're sweating. You basically wear a tank top that's half cut out. I mean, 17 years ago, you know, you got to think about it. You're wearing a tank top with half your body out because you cannot cannot wear a t-shirt, a regular t-shirt. You know, you got to wear like a wife beater or something else to actually stay in a truck, to unload a truck at that capacity. We've had people fainted. We've had people died. We've had people, you know, brought out there in stretchers. Uh, and then the, the, the extreme, I mean, I just can't imagine people that work for UPS in Alaska. I was working at a gateway facility at Newark, New Jersey airport, where outside there were freezing temperatures. There was nothing to shelter with. We would get warmth next to K-loaders that took the machine up. There was no, there was no part of your day that you can spend to get warm at sub-degree weather. We would have to wear hand warmers and the company would not provide any relief. So I say working in the working conditions in the building is horrid. It is not it is it is the illusion that you're working in in modern day in modern day era in the United States of America that's comparable to what we've heard about sweatshops. UPS can be comparable to <laughs> a sweatshop in the U.S. It's it's no different. You know, we criticize countries that that have horrid conditions, but right here in the U.S., around our doors, people have no idea what's happening in these buildings and in trucks and in trailers that people are dying, passing out, handling boxes at record pace, supervisors shouting at you if you're not. If you're not producing at that kind of pace and level, and you got to look at it, look at the injury rate of UPS workers. They're, they're injured at a higher proportion of any other worker out there across the country because the work is so rigorous. Mm -hmm. So I can't describe, except I can only describe it as horrid. Except maybe for Amazon. It's a, uh, Absolutely. If I could. Second, it's right. important That's to understand. To it's important to understand that, you know, uh, people have this image of a package right? Like it's this little brown box tied with a string or whatever. But when we talk about packages at UPS, we're talking about furniture. We're talking about, uh, you know, we have couches now that come in pieces. We have barbell sets that are 140 pounds. We have tires. We have industrial equipment. We have hazardous materials. We have chemicals that can be toxic if they're spilled, if they're leaking. You're expecting we, you know, Carlos talks about that thousand packages. They're not all little five pound boxes. Uh, you know, a good chunk of them are 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 pounds that you're expected to move at the same pace, whether, whether they're one pound or a hundred, you're expected to continue. And the same goes for a delivery driver. You're, you're not allotted an extra five minutes because you have to take that couch up a flight of stairs or whatever it is. You're expected to keep the same pace regardless of how big the packages are all day long. In case you're just joining us, we're speaking with Teamster members Carlos Silva, Carthy Boston, and Greg Kerwood about one of the most important labor negotiations in the U.S., the contract at UPS, which could lead to one of the biggest strikes in U.S. history. I'm your host, Barry Eidlin, standing in for Susie Weissman. So as tough a job as it is at UPS, it would be a lot worse if you didn't 
have the Teamsters there to organize the workplace. And so obviously we're, we're, we're in the midst of these contract negotiations that have led up to uh, reached a, a real critical point at this, at this moment. So could you talk a bit, maybe Carthy, you could start us off about what are the big issues that the Teamsters have sought to address about the work at UPS leading into the contract negotiations? Well, one of the things that we've, we've talked about, we hammer away on the 22-4 issue, and that was a two-tier system that came in place in the last contract negotiation that we have, getting rid so of the So could you explain system. a bit what the That's 22-4, what the 22-4 position right. is? So this is Article 22-4 in the UPS contract, and it created this new position. Can you explain Absolutely. What, that, what that is? Let's go back to the fundamental basis where there was a two-tier system introduced where drivers that did the same work were paid differently. So there were two tier driving. So driver A would be paid 20 bucks an hour, 2050 to be precise, where a driver B would have been paid $41 and 49 cents for doing the same job, delivering the same packages, same amount of production that Carlos spoke about, same amount of levels of pushing that box out, and they would make a lesser salary. So case in point, if I'm being paid $20 and 50 cents for doing the same job as my colleague for $41 and 49 cents, I would think it's unfair, right? Because we're, 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 we're executing the same amount of labor. And in, in that, in that same vein, we also have a two-tier system, in our opinion, where part-timers are also being paid astronomically less than a driver for doing a job that's sometimes even comparable, right? We have inside workers who are also making less as so much less, even though they might have more seniority than a driver. So what the company is saying to me is that drivers are cherished and nobody else is worth anything, to say the least. So again, abolishing the two-tier system was a big point of our contract, again, in many ways than one, not just for the 22 fours, but also for part-timers. So as you're hearing a lot of the part-time conversation now, to equal out the pay, to make sure that part-timers are not being treated or treated unfairly and also maintaining poverty wages in the U.S. at this point. So that's key. The next part of the contract is our drivers are overworked. Um, they work six days a week currently in the current contract. They've been forced into work on Saturdays. Instead of having a five-day work week, EPS is pushing to, to meet the demands of the market. Obviously, Amazon is already on the seven-day seven mark. So UPS is gradually trying to catch up. But again, our drivers are suffering the consequences of that because they are making money. That $90,000 that they make, they don't have time to spend it because most of it is spent at work. UPS is gruesome hours. You have drivers out there making 11, 12-hour days. So if you're making 12-hour days for six days a week, it means you get no time to spend with your family. Um, and it also means that you're exhausted, you're tired, you're fatigued, and your productivity at some point is being lessened. So those are the issues, some of the issues that's being um, discussed in the contract. Some of them have already been closed. Some of them already, we already have agreements on, you know, tentative yeah. agreements. So at this point, these are the big issues. And another big issue for us is safety. As you know, like I said, people are dying in trucks across the country. Uh, and we hammered away on that. It's important to have air conditioning in trucks that is coming down the line, fans, all those things that impact people who are in, in the trucks every day and the drivers who are out there. So those are some of the key issues. And again, there's so many of them that UPS, where we're basically talking about no concessions and, and 
we can't go back to where we were because the contract that we had for the last five years was was again horrible. And at this point, we're trying to better conditions and to lessen conditions that we've had and say, guys, we need to better this, whether or not it's giving Martin Luther King Day off. And the company has not honored that from since the beginning of the contract. And we're, we're, we're talking about 2023 where we have Juneteenth. That's also an official holiday now. and We're just catching up to, to Martin Luther King Day. I mean, it's case in point. So these are the things that are important to members. And we got to remember that UPS is a reflection, should be a reflection of society. Um, we're talking about things that affect populations that UPS have not caught up with, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's um, gender, gender equality in any way. These are the things that UPS would need to address in the upcoming contract, because something like hazard pay was never addressed in our contract. What if we have another pandemic? These are things that while we're at the negotiating table right now, we have to take into account the world is changing. Greg and Carlos, were there other key issues that uh, that you wanted to add? I I think she covered it all, man. She she said it all, you know, she definitely said it all. So people need to understand that that two tier wage system it also creates division right between the drivers like she said right why this guy's making way less and this guy's making 40 dollars an hour is you know that division right there is like why am i getting paid less i'm doing the same work as you or say <clears throat> say one of the drivers needs help at the end of the day they'll send one of the drivers who's making less money now he's questioning that driver saying, well, you're making $43 an hour and you're not working that hard that I need to help you. So it creates, you know, some type of anger and some type of division between drivers, mm-hmm. you know. I know that one of the, that, that uh, members in local 804 in New York City uh, created a campaign around uh, the surveillance cameras in the trucks. Is that something that uh, is an issue in Boston, Greg? Uh, we haven't had the cameras yet in local 25, but certainly it's a concern of everyone. It, you know, we've had other technologies and continue to have other technologies, uh, that all boil down to the same thing. It's just micromanagement by the company. They just put scanners in my building, you know, where now that the boxes are given labels that have basically chips in them. And so now they can walk in with a scanner and tell if somebody put something on the wrong truck. And, you know, to, to the layperson, that sounds like, well, they want to make sure stuff gets on the right truck. That seems reasonable. But what all this technology ends up being is just a method of harassment. Um, it ends up leading to un, uncalled for discipline, uh, singling certain people out as opposed to other people. The same issues on the, on the truck. You know, I, I tell people all the time uh, as a driver, you know, my whole truck is wired. Everything, they know when the doors open, when the doors close, when the brakes are on, how hard I hit the brakes, how fast I'm traveling, how fast I stopped, uh, whether my, my signals are on, my lights are on. Uh, and all of that is cross-referenced with the, the dyad device that we use to deliver the packages. It has GPS attached to it. They can literally sit in front of a screen and watch your day unfold like a video game and see where you are, what you're doing, when your door opens, when it closes, how long it took you to get to the door, how long it took you to get back, when you said the stop was complete. Uh, and, and it's all micromanagement is, is really mm-hmm. all it is. It provides absolutely no benefit to the company other than another means of harassing their employees, uh, again, to try to get us to go 
faster and 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 really at an unsafe pace is what they're looking for at this point the the attitude of the company where it used to be you know these are our and I'm speaking as a driver uh, these as these are our people they're the face of the company we want people who are here for a career to be here for a long time that attitude has completely flipped into let's burn them up and churn them up and break them down and throw them away and replace them with somebody else and so when you combine the micromanagement with the harassment, with the increased size of the packages and the increased number of packages, it's virtually impossible, I would say at this point, to do this job for a, a, a lifetime and not end up with serious health issues, sometimes mental health issues, definitely physical health issues. I don't know anybody with 20 plus years who hasn't had at least one surgery of some kind, uh, shoulder injuries, knee injuries, uh, you know, with the weight that we're carrying and moving with, you know, it's not just simply lifting something, but it's lifting it and moving with it over God knows what terrain, staircases, you know, uneven sidewalks, dirt roads, uh, whatever. It's just a recipe for injury if you can't take the time to do it safely. And the company is not interested in you taking the time to do it safely. And, and if I may add to that, I tell my employees, meaning as a union rep, I got to represent people who lose their jobs, right? Every single day. And, and and for me, it becomes a situation where I tell employees, UPS is the only job you'll ever have that you only come to work every day to be fired. It is not that I will work with you. It is not that I'm going to try to make you a better employee. It is that I'm just trying to get you fired. It is never working with you to try to make you a better person, a quality worker, or to go to that extent to try to keep you as an employee. It is a job that spends so much money trying to get people out the door and replenishing their stock. So it's like, it's a revolving door for a reason. And that quasi government statement that my colleague in crime made, it is absolutely correct. Greg was on point. It is absolutely quasi government. You got people coming, uh, military coming out of the military and saying to themselves, we don't know how you guys have survived here. We've been in the military for 20 years and this is like horrible. How do you guys make it to the point that you can survive? We've had people who've been in the military come to UPS and say they can't even stick it out. So you have to think about what kind of working conditions we're on, if it's even worse than a military style base. Um, So that is what it is. So turning to the present, can we just get an update on where things stand with negotiations? So what has the union won so far and what are the sticking points? Because, of course, there was the breakdown announced on July 5th. So we have moved forward and got a lot of stuff so far. You know, we got a lot of TAs. We got a, like, car to say. TA is a tentative agreement. Correct. So, you know, the 224, the two-wage program, we got rid of it. The six-day punch, which is overtime, working on the weekends, we got rid of it. And the reason, the main reason why we mainly stopped right now, we stuck and we haven't been back to the table is because of economics. UPS do not want to pay the part-timers the money that they deserve. You know what I mean? UPS made a lot of money during the pandemic because of those workers out there. We're working mandatory six days, you know, while the CEOs and the stock members were chilling at home, maybe watching Netflix or some kind of TV 
we were out there sticking our necks out. We were out there working and now they don't want to pay us. So that's why right now there's no talks anymore. And that's why there might be a strike if we don't get the contract we deserve. But that's why we're standing still right now. So there are a couple of other issues if you want me to elaborate yeah, as well. Please. Just to add to Carlos's um one. So we've never had MLK Day. That has been negotiated within the contract to have MLK Day as an official holiday. There were things like the payroll errors that the company has we we have faced a penalty for that. If you if you keep our money, there's a penalty for every time the company keeps your money, right? It's like the stock market. So there's been more penalties associated with keeping our money if you choose to do that when we're not paid correctly. There are issues such as uh, harassment before as causing, according to contract, it was a three-day situation where people were paid three days for excessive harassment if they won at the national panel. Now that is also directly going to the national panel on, on negotiations if it's if it's if that's agreed on, tentative agreement, as well as now from three days to five days. So if someone is caught excessively harassing an employee. It's no longer, um, based on a grievance process, it's no longer a three-day pay. It would be five days of pay versus that. Um, the technology part- So they're awarded, like, they're awarded five days pay right. for every day that they're found to have been harassed. Well, it's a five-day awarded of pay if the grievance uh-huh. is upheld, which just means if they're found in violation of. <laughs> so it used okay. to be in our contract three days, but now okay. it's been increased to five increased days. Increased to five, pay. okay. Definitely the technology part of it, which is removing the cameras where someone will not be disciplined for cameras. Like I said, the use of cameras. So they can't even issue a warning letter for that. As you guys know, there was huge discipline being issued for cameras. Technology is a big fan of UPS. So again, they're saying, listen, you cannot use the technology part of it, just technology alone by itself to discipline members. And that's that's huge. That's a big win because technology is not our friend. It's our enemy when it comes to UPS. So that was probably one of it. And again, the contract enforcement, I guess they had an agreement and subcontracting was one again that they had some kind of agreement with too, um, as far as the subcontracting. Can you explain the subcontracting agreement? Uh, well, the subcontracting agreement, as you know, we have 22, what do we have? We have sure post packages. They're going to try to make sure more sure post packages are put on our trucks versus being delegated to the post office. So a short post is actually an agreement that we have to handle mail from the postal service. So instead of having them, they're going to redirect it to UPS from the postal service now. Okay. And it's seemingly, you know, protecting and creating more teamster jobs because a lot of that work would be going elsewhere. So that's one. And I think there's some feeder language that I'm not too sure about, but there was another feeder part attached with that. Uh, More feeder work as well in terms of subcontracting. And I think they also negotiated or about to negotiate the PVD language as well in the subcontracting. PVDs are what? PVDs are personal vehicle drivers. They use uh, personal vehicle drivers. They use a a car to transport packages by UPS, fortunately for that. So that's, again, one of the language maybe under the subcontracting situation. So it's like the Uberized version of a UPS Mm -hmm. driver, essentially. Go ahead, Carlos. You're good. No, I was going to say definitely that's what it is. You know, they, they don't even wear a uniform. You know what I mean? They just wear a vest that says UPS. And they, yeah. they drive their own car and they deliver packages for us. So that's some been, of, so that's some been of the eliminated? Feeder work, 
So no, some of the theater work that's still there, but some of the theater work um, have been going to people like some subcon- subcontractors. And in my opinion, PPDs are subcontractors, which just means they take the work that feeder drivers could have. So mm-hmm. currently in the language, um, the new language will state that feeder drivers should get the work instead of subcontractors. They should get the work first. Mm-hmm. When they're instead of being laid off or something to the extent they can't be laid off before, they actually should get the work before being laid off. That's the case. So there. these are all issues that have been resolved. Resolved. And then on July fifth, we received notice that talks had broken down and. Carlos, if I understand you correctly, the sticking issue was really the part-time wages. Yes. Is that correct? Com- That's correct. Yeah. Part-time wages. Okay. Yes, the economics is what sticks out there. Uh-huh. You know? And so the contract now expires on July 31st. O'Brien has said that if there's no agreement uh, by August 1st, that you will be on strike. So what so can you just walk me through what the possible what you see as the possible outcomes at this point and what seems what seems to your mind to be the most likely outcome? Um, there are many possible outcomes to this. Uh we could end up on strike. Uh the company could do the right thing and roll out of bed tomorrow and say, you know what, this is silly. Let's give these people what they deserve. That's probably unlikely. I would guess. Uh, and this is pure speculation on my part that at some point before that expires, they're going to throw something at us. I doubt knowing them, they're going to give us what we're asking for, but I would guess they're going to try to throw some sort of last offer at us to uh, potentially avoid the strike. That's going to be up to our negotiating committee, whether they think it's worthy of, you know, having the members vote on it. You know, we're stuck. On that part-time pay, and just to give listeners a little perspective, uh, because everybody has their own sort of interpretation of part-time work or, or whatever it is, back in the 70s and 80s, part-time pay and full-time pay were exactly the same at UPS. Drivers, preloaders, everybody at the company made the same rate. Um, that was changed in 1982. Part-timers uh, actually rolled back. Uh, $4 an hour from $12 an hour down to eight. Since 1982, UPS profits have grown by over 4,000%. If you can even imagine how large that is, the profits went from, I believe, 322 million to uh, $13.9 billion last year. During that same period from 82 till now, part-time pay has yet to even double. It's gone from $8 to now $15.50. And believe it or not, it took probably 25 to 30 of those years to get from $8 to even $10. Um, so this is not a problem that was a short time in making. Um, part-time pay has been stagnant at UPS for decades. And, you know, as we've described, the work is incredibly physical, strenuous, hot, over-supervised, and it's it's really an embarrassment. It, it, the company should be embarrassed. These folks are the backbone of the operation, like Carlo said. Their majority of UPS Teamsters are part-time. Uh, they do an incredible amount of work. The, the entire system can't function without any of us, but it certainly can't function without those folks who, who you know, like Carlos and like Carthy formally, you know, are willing to come in at 2 a.m., 
you know, do their job or come in at 11 o'clock at night or, you know, work odd hours for short periods of time that are incredibly intense, uh, you know, and, and then try to balance their lives around those things. This part-time pay issue is not your run-of-the-mill, we want a couple of more bucks because we deserve it. This is a long, long, long festering issue, a long, long time coming. Uh, and it's something that I, I have to take my hat off to our negotiating committee for drawing the line and saying, uh, no, we're not going to accept that any longer. We're going to get these folks who are fundamental to this company's success uh, the money they deserve. I mean, you got to think about the starting wages of part-timers right now. It's $16.49 approximately within that sixteen fifty range. In many of the cities that, for example, in the D.C. area, you got to think the average cost of living in D.C. is astronomically high. No one can afford to live on a $16.49 salary starting out as a part-timer. So it's poverty wages for us. The company can absolutely do better. It took me as a part-timer, I started out with UPS making $8. It took me almost... 16 years to get to the $20 mark. I mean, this is a billion dollar company. We're not talking about people that are making extremely wealthy money. We are wealthy. We're talking about people who are making starvation wages. They are living paycheck to paycheck. For them, it's a difference between choosing to fix their, to go to the dentist, choosing to put their children to school, choosing to leave their kids at home without a sitter to get up at two o'clock in the morning. These are tough choices. These are tough choices that they have to make because for them, 1649 is like they're hanging on to their life and, you know, and eating peanut butter and sardines and bread and butter every day. That's not, no one wants to live on bread and butter for the rest of their lives. So the case in point, you know, I'm representing inner city DC who tell me every single day they have to catch an Uber to work. So just to get there to make what 50 bucks or $20 that day, because half of their money goes to Uber transportation at two o'clock in the morning. This is the population that I represent, not the billion dollar plutocrats and corporate plutocrats, I would say, in any sense of the word, you know? So when we're looking at raising the wage, we're talking about a population that's suffering. Definitely. You know, these part-timers, they don't have just one job. They got multiple jobs. You know, Carthy said earlier that the drivers low, uh, work long hours and they're hardly home. Same with the part-timers. This company takes so much time away from our families. You know, I don't know if anybody knows, but the divorce rate at UPS is pretty high. The stress level at UPS is pretty high. And for a company to take it this long to actually give us the contract we deserve as far as economics, it's unbelievable. I don't understand why they want to wait until the 11th hour to give us a contract that it might not even make sense for us. You know, in reality, we are the face of UPS, the drivers, the part-timers, the loaders, their own loaders, their soldiers, all the members that work at UPS are the face of UPS, not the CEO, not the person who is pushing the buns behind a computer. The customers don't see them. The customers see us and they like UPS because of us. They like UPS because of that driver who's out there giving them great customer service for a pickup or they give them their own phone number so they can call them so they can go make a special delivery, you know, or where to leave the package. That's why we have a lot of customers. That's why UPS makes a lot of money. Not because of the CEOs. It's us, the members that make this company. So it's unbelievable that the company is not willing to share the profits that they're making 
with the people who actually are like the wheels of this machine. In case you're just joining us, we're speaking with Teamster members Carlos Silva, Carthy Boston, and Greg Kerwood about one of the most important labor negotiations in the U.S. today, the contract at UPS, which could lead to one of the biggest strikes in U.S. history. I'm your host, Barry Eidland, standing in for Susie Weissman. Now, obviously, this contract at UPS is crucial for the Teamsters. It's the largest single contract at, for the Teamsters, but it's the largest private sector contract in North America. And so it has some broader implications beyond the Teamsters for the labor movement and the working class more broadly. So can I, can you talk a bit about why you see this contract as so important, not just for the Teamsters? I would say the reason for this is because corporations have been winning for a long, long time now. There's the pendulum has been swinging in their direction. The laws have been going in their favor. The Supreme Court decisions have been going their way. And this being the largest private sector contract in the country, you know, and the fact that UPS members uh, are coming into this aggressively because of our the subpar contract in 2018, because we have new leadership that's willing to take the company on, the stars are aligning, so to speak, for us to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, okay, the pendulum stops here, and now we're going to push it back the other way. And so the corporations are watching this to see what they could be dealing with from others. You know, the UAW is right behind us by about a month, I think. The other workers are watching us, both union and non-union, union workers to see, you know, is this possible? Can you stand up to a giant corporation and win? And non-union workers, of course, like those at Amazon are looking to this saying, does this, this union thing really work out? Can they actually do this? Can they take on a multi-billion dollar international corporation and, and simply, you know, withhold their labor to, to get what they deserve? Uh, and so I think that that's the reason that this is the moment that is going to determine whether we're going to continue down this path of corporations running everything and people becoming more and more replaceable and disposable, or we're going to stop it here and we're going to head back in the direction of people receiving part of the rewards for their labor uh, and being treated as human beings with respect and dignity. I definitely agree with everything that Greg said. This is huge. I don't know if anybody noticed, but there is a labor movement out there. Everybody's standing up everybody's willing to fight for what they deserve. So if you got UPS, 340 plus members out there going to fight and actually get what they want, this is, it will set the standards for everybody else who's behind us to to notice, right? That if they fight, like Greg said, they will get it. But we will set the standards for all the labor movement across the nation if we actually do win and get the contract that we do deserve. And so obviously we don't know what the outcome is going to be come August 1st, but the Teamsters have been not taking any chances and have been laying the groundwork to prepare for a possible strike come August 1st. Can you talk a bit about what that preparation has looked like in your area? Maybe Carthy can start. Well, we are energized. We are energetic. We're about, we're out there in all our facilities. I can tell you as part of Local 639, we have been practice picketing in all our centers and all our 
buildings and the turnout has been overwhelmingly amazing. Um, people have come out early in the morning. They are out there with us. They are, yesterday we did a practice picketing at one of our buildings and the turnout was fantastic. We just blowing out the numbers. We can't even believe people are coming out. They're standing with us for the entire time, two, three hours before they get to work, after they leave work. We have part-timers, full-timers. It's just a wave of solidarity between. We have had community solidarity partners who've come out to help us out, hold signs, and understand the value of this contract. This is an important game changer for the labor movement across the U.S. This is not about just UPS. This is about labor across the country, because if we break through the doors of changing the movement for every, for our UPS, we change the movement movement for uh, Chipotle, Amazon, the whole works. And the, the wage will definitely increase across the board. And I think for to see part-timers and full-timers out there holding hand-in-hand hand, locked together and say, guys, we support you guys. And there was a chant on my line, part-timers support full-timers, full-timers support part-timers. That was amazing to see that chant, to know that there's no divide. And even the company wants to divide us, we stand united. And, and, and that was, like I said, a trend that we've been seeing across our facilities. We've been in Virginia, we've been in DC, and we've been in parts of Maryland where we have local 639 has been operating. And I tell you, it's just been a great turnout. We are holding picketing signs and we will take this energy into a possible strike if needed. Carlos, Greg, you want to add about any, give any local reports from your areas? Yeah, definitely. In, in my local out here in Gardena, the members, the rank and file members actually organized the practice picket. And, you know, some people might, might wonder why practice, right? Why practice picking? A lot of these members have never been on strike before. I mean, including myself. I got hired right after a 1997 strike. I never been on strike. I don't know what to do. So this is a time where we can teach them on what to do and what to expect from a picket line. And also to send the message to UPS, right? I got my t-shirt right here. It says, ready to strike if we have to, you know, that's what we want. We want to let UPS know that we are ready. It doesn't matter what's going to happen, that we are ready. So like Carthy said, you know, the turnout has been great. It's been amazing. It's been, you know, people who are normally quiet, don't really say nothing. They just come to work and leave. They're energized, like Carthy said. They're willing to stand out on the street and hold that picket sign and, and fight, you know, for their rights and fight for what they deserve. So it's been outstanding, 100% A-plus on everybody out there uh, practice picketing. Yeah, I'm going to have to concur with my brother and sister. Uh, the, the response has been amazing. Uh, I actually did one in my building this morning, which is my my voice is somewhat gone. The Turnout of the members has been great. We had some community folks out there with us today. And I think it's important to note that the members that are out there, they're not following every issue of the contract. They're not taking notes on everything. They're not knee deep in contract language. They simply know that they're not being treated with respect and dignity and they've had enough of it. And so this is boiling down to a much more base level argument not contractual nuts and bolts, but just a simple matter of what we do. We get it done every day. We showed up, you know, when the rest of the country was locked down, we put our boots on, we went to work, we delivered the vaccines, you know, we delivered medicines to people that were stuck at home that would not have survived. We put ourselves at risk, we put our families at risk, and we had members who literally slept in their garages or, you know, 
wouldn't go in their house for fear of uh, uh, infecting their families. Uh, and we understand that, you know, the company, not that it was fine before that, because it hasn't been, but, you know, they made nearly double their profits from the pandemic. That just adds insult to injury. When when you've worked there for as long as the three of us have, and you've seen the harassment, and you've seen the mistreatment, and you've seen what they do to employees, uh, how they go out of their way sometimes to just destroy people's lives just as a, a flex of their power, enough is enough. And I think part of what the pandemic did is to make our members realize just how important and vital they are that this isn't just a job, that we're a big part of the national economy. We're a big part of taking care of Americans and, and that we get this stuff done and that the country relies upon us and did rely upon us. And uh, what is happening, I think, is our members are realizing their own, own importance and that they're entitled to more than just showing up and getting a paycheck when they're sacrificing so much. And the other side of that is I think the country is realizing it. And the public is is on our side 100%, um, not simply because they love their personal UPS driver, but because they understand what we did and what we went through and how they could not have survived if we didn't show up every day and get the job done. That's why when you're out on those practice picket lines, and I think these guys will agree, there's a passion there. There's a almost joy there there's a there's a camaraderie and a feeling and a vibe that goes well beyond we want more money there's there's a sense of we're standing up for ourselves we're standing up for something that goes beyond ourselves uh that we deserve more that we know it the public knows it and that the time is now to make this happen and and set things right yeah and i think one thing that's important to note here is that You've you've been reporting the sort of excitement from the practice pickets, but there's a lot of members who I would guess would be quite happy if there was a negotiated settlement, and certainly the team members in the teamster leadership who would be fine with a good deal that was achieved at the negotiating table rather than on the picket line. But Greg, I know that you've written about this that you think it's actually important to strike. And that that you get something additional beyond what's in the contract language from the act of going on strike. Could you just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I think that's what I'm I'm trying to allude to here is that there's there's the nuts and bolts of the contract and, you know, what you get paid and what your benefits will be and all of those things. But then there's there's a much deeper, more emotional, more personal level that this fight has taken on. And to my mind, I don't think we can deal with that effectively, with that passion, with the fire, with the anger, with the frustration, with all of the emotions that are running through our members. I don't think we can address that without a strike. I think all of that needs somewhere to go. Uh, I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary for the members to vent those emotions. I think it's very necessary for the company to understand and see that those emotions are there, that they're not dealing with robots, that they're not dealing with replaceable cogs in a profit-making machine. Uh, I think it's it's necessary for the public to see it, other workers to see it, 
you know, other corporations to see it and to understand that we're dealing with something here that is, is much more on a base human level of whether people are going to give their labor in the service of a company and what they're supposed to get in return, whether this is, you know, whether there's a basic human right to dignity in your work, to receiving part of the compensation and, and, and the fruits of your labor, or whether we're really all just going to break into these are just the parts of the machine and the top of the machine makes all the money and there's no humanity left amongst us. And so I think this, this really exists on a much deeper level than that. And I don't see how we address that without some sort of nationwide publicized something that everyone can focus on that, that really demonstrates what this fight is really actually all about. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I 100%. Another thing is there's a definitely disconnect between the corporation and the workers, right? And if we, for whatever reason, we do go on strike, all those managers and supervisors, they have to work. They got to put in the hours. They got to brown up. So they're going to get the feeling that we feel, you know, with that pressure of loading the trucks and going out there and delivering those packages and creating that customer contact. They're going to feel that pressure. Like Greg said, there's no other way that anybody will understand if we're not, if we're out there. So that disconnect, it has to, we got to make sure that they humble themselves. I don't know if you guys seen the video of uh, Carol Tomei loading a truck. She was loading a truck. And Carol Tomei is one... the CEO of UPS. Yes. She was, um, they have her own video. She was loading a trailer. She grabbed one package, touched that package like five, ten times. And you got the Teamster member next to her loading like, she loaded, I think, believe he loaded like ten packages while she's still fiddling with that one package. You know, in reality, she would have been fired. They would have told her right away, you ain't making it. Go home, my friend. You ain't making it. You, you're not part of UPS. So that disconnect, they got to humble themselves and they got to understand that it's a lot of work. We deserve a good contract. In case you're just joining us, we're speaking with Teamster members, Carlos Silva, Carthy Boston, and Greg Kerwood about one of the most important labor negotiations in the, in the U.S., the contract at UPS which could lead to one of the biggest strikes in U.S. history. I'm your host, Barry Eidland, standing in for Susie Weisman. So taking a step back here, how did we get here to this situation with the UPS contract? What has laid the groundwork, both for these core issues surrounding the negotiations, as well as the fact that we've got a more militant approach to negotiations this time around, which could potentially lead up to the strike that we're looking at on August 1st. Give me the most difficult questions, don't you? That's fine. Only because you're the most capable of answering. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, I, I I would say that organizations such as TDU have played a tremendous role in holding many people foot to the fire and accountability when it comes to 
fair, fair wages and fair labor practices and also making sure there's integrity standards across the board for union leaders. And so TDU I think is Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Teamsters for a Democratic Union. union. And yes. I think all of us on here are, are members to a whole huge extent of Teamster for a Democratic Union. So I definitely like to say for, for Teamster for a Democratic Union, they have been pretty much watch, watchdogs in the movement. Um, as you know, they worked, we worked hard to get this new militant movement and on O'Brien elected. Many of us were at the gates working hard for about two years to put this new administration together and make sure that he did get elected. And, and we, we, we understand that. We also, when we look at a strike, we look at having a powerful strike. We're not like looking to have a weak strike and all of our members start collapsing. So I think people like TDU are definitely along the lines with that. And we have taken concessions for so long, Barry. It's, it's about this point in time where we have said no more. At one point, you have to put draw the line in the sand. And I think for all of us as unionists, we've drawn a line in the sand. We said, when is enough enough? We've faced exploitation. We've faced um, unfair wage practices. We've faced everything with a company who's not willing to give. And like Greg alluded to, there's going to be a point in time where we say, now it's time for us to fight back. So how did we get to this point? We've got to the point because it's egregious. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's everything that you can possibly think of. When you think we have a CEO of Carol Tomei, who's a woman and not out there advocating for women's views, not out there thinking that we need to have paid maternity leave for every woman that works in her company, and this is a billion dollar company, how progressive can we say a leader of such has been? You know, I'm a woman. I'm out there advocating for women's issues every single day, not just as a woman, not just as a colored woman, not just as a black woman, not just as a Latina woman, but as a woman. You know, so at the end of the day, we have to ask, how did it get there? It got there because of greed. Corporate greed would lead us to this point. And it's time for us, not just me, not just you, but our entire people that work in economies of scale, 6% GDP across the U.S. We're talking about 6% of America's gross domestic product. Come on, UPS can afford to pay their employees what they're worth. So at the end of the day- You're referring to the fact that 6% of- Global of U.S. GDP US passes GDP. through UPS. UPS, absolutely, on a daily uh, basis. basis. Yes. Every single so. day. I'm not quite sure yes. if your public, the general public, are aware of that, but that's the thing I look at. If we're talking about such a dent in the U.S. economy, then we're talking about a company that owe it to its employees to treat them right. Case in point, we're not treated right. They come to work every single day and they're not treated right. I was not treated right. They were not treated right. So when we look at the turning point, we're at that point where we're saying enough is enough. We found someone in Sean O'Brien to stand up to the company and said, our members want more. And this is what it is. Today, we want more. Tomorrow, we want more. Yeah, we get it. There's corporate greed going on. But what about the phrase that says your employees will work harder for you and better for you if they're treated right? So at this point, we're here to get our fair share of the pie. Yeah. Carlos, could you take us back the, to the 2018 contract, right, which is in many ways sort of an important thing to understand, to understand what's going on with the 2023 contract and what happened there to lay the groundwork for what we're seeing today? Yeah, so the 20, 2018 contract, man, that was a horrible contract, right? Like Carthy said, right? We, uh, we're tired of concessions. So... The old so-called leadership in our union was more involved with uh, the company than actually taking care of the members. So there was a vote no campaign. The majority of the members voted no. But the leadership at that moment 
they found a loophole in the contract. In the, union, in the union constitution. Yes, they found a loophole and they pushed the contract through. And in reality, that's part of why we all got together and voted Sean O'Brien in. Because like Carthy said, we're tired. We're tired of the concessions. We're tired of this leadership not having our backs. So we rise up. We got together and we booted him out. Yeah, and obviously I think Carthy, you you already you already referenced this, but uh you know, Teamsters for Democratic Union has played a key role in in laying the groundwork for this. And you are all leaders in TDU, uh, which has been around now for 47 years. Can you talk a bit about a bit more about the role that TDU has been playing in the UPS contract campaign under this new more militant leadership of Sean O'Brien? And secondly, how does TDU's role differ now compared to what it was under the previous administration of James P. Hoffa? Well, to answer the first part of your question, TDU has now, for the first time since the Ron Kerry administration in the 90s, taken on a more partnership role uh, with union leadership, with the Teamster leadership, with the O'Brien slate. So we have been working sort of with the contract campaign, sometimes suggesting things from them, sometimes following through on things that they want. But it's very much been a a collaborative, I think, approach. TDU is well known to have a rank and file network that they can tap into, uh, whereas the new administration wouldn't necessarily have had that in place and ready to go. So I think the two have sort of facilitated each other well uh, in this contract campaign. As far as TDU's role, I don't really think that that has actually changed. I think fundamentally TDU is about rank and file members, rank and file organizing, rank and file education. I think the difference is that they are now not having to fight the administration to do so. But I think the actual goal and the approach is remains the same. Uh, I just think there's no one now actively fighting against TDU doing what it does best. I, I would I would add to that to say, you know, I, I totally agree with him. Um, to more extent, a lot of people are saying that maybe the watchdog approach is not as 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 militant as it used to be, but it is. It's still there. I think TDU has never been not a watchdog or not holding anyone's foot to the fire. I think it's absolutely there. It's just that there is a collaborative point because there's some things that we've seen work better now than it did 20 years ago and case in point, but we still out there holding people accountable and foot to the fire in many stands in many, many areas. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to add to that, you know, a lot of people included some of the principal officers of the IBT or whatnot used to bash TDU. They didn't really like TDU. It's always been a hate love relationship type of thing. You know what I mean? Or hate, hate. Yes. (laughs) But uh, people always question TDU. But if you actually read and do your homework about what TDU is all about, without TDU, none of the members will be able to vote for the leadership, for those principal officers. TDU made that happen. And on a personal level, for me, 
DDU has been everything. I wouldn't be the activist that I am today if it wasn't for TDU. TDU educated me. TDU gave me the power, gave me the knowledge, gave me the confidence to fight back at my boss and including some of some other officers, for instance, on my local that don't want to step up. So TDU has been essential for me to make that happen. And it can make that happen to anybody who's willing to become a member of TDU and actually take the time to get educated because that's how you grow. You know what I mean? And it's all about growth. You know, and TDU gives you that. I mean, outside of the TDU's aspect, I could only add to Carlos. I mean, uh, TDU is the reason why I'm here. I mean, I, I, I can't speak to any anybody else, but I can only speak to me that they embraced my militancy. They never looked at my militancy as being odd or weird or obscure. You know, people with brilliant minds or brilliant ideas are often shoved in a corner and, and you're too militant or you're too aggressive or in any stance of the way. Um, but in all essence, TDU would craft that and make you... Uh, a solid leader. So case in point, wherever you want to explore, I came to TDU, not not for the political aspect or anything. I came to TDU for the educational value that it provided me. And case in point, you can grow into what you want to grow into. And that's what evolved for me. But I did not come to the table for any political advantages or anything politically motivated. I came to the table because I wanted to understand what the rank and file members do and my role and how I played a role in that. And the only organization at that time that was essentially there to educate me on that process was TD. So it was just a natural fit. So I know that you're all pretty focused for good reason on the UPS contract at the moment, but I wanted to encourage you now to look ahead and think about what comes next for this broader project of Teamster reform. Because obviously, you know, the UPS contracts is important, but one contract doesn't, you know, change a union, right? Although it can play a role. So what do you see after the contract as the next steps in the work of turning the Teamsters in a better direction? Can I what say Amazon? I say? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it, it, it still goes back to that same core principle of TDU of rank and file empowerment, uh, and education. You know, I think we get, uh, sometimes focused on the contract and the deadline and getting a deal. But the reality is, is that that's only half the battle. Once you have that contract, you have to learn that contract. You have to enforce that contract and you have to teach the members how to do so. Getting that contract is really only the beginning. And I think TDU's role and the role of, uh, you know, any reform movement is going to continue to be building a union from the bottom up. Because when you build it from the bottom up, that takes care of the rest. Uh, the leaders will come. Uh, the change that's necessary in, in whatever locals will come if you build that rank and file movement and that rank and file uh, educated workforce that knows their rights, knows their contract, knows how to stand up for themselves, knows how to stand together. Uh, and that is something that should come out of this contract campaign, right? Part of the solidarity building that we're doing to get everybody ready if we do have to strike easily carries over and translates into getting everybody on the same page as far as enforcing their contract and changing their local union and reforming uh, the way things are done and those things. So uh, I think the MO for TDU is is always going to be that. I don't see 
as any reform movement within a union is always going to be about educating and empowering the rank and file. And I don't think uh, any set of circumstances would change that. Yeah. But getting more concrete, I did hear you, Carthy, say Amazon. So can you talk a bit about that as a next step? Well, I think we're all focused on that. I think for us, it's just something that needs to happen. It's essential for UPS survival. It's important that we are moving to to warehousing. We're already in that market. It's something that I think the IBT is also adequately prepared to do. Um, they already have a unit that's scared towards Amazon organizing. And we're all laser focused on that being the next step, because in order to for where we stand, we've already, well, we're done with the UPS contract. Is eyes are all on what happens at Amazon and how we can better working conditions for those employees that work there day to day. Um, there, there are similar working conditions that they work under that's comparable to what we have faced at UPS. So it's our goal to make those units, whether it's warehousing and internal units, better drivers, wherever it is, it's to make their working conditions just as comparable or even better than what, than what yeah. we have now. You just cannot sit back and have workers work in those sweatshops and what I call them sweatshops. They are sweatshops. I mean, at least Amazon have air conditioning. But at the end of the day, that's what they are. You know, it's it's gruesome labor and we have to focus our energies to make people's lives and working conditions better. Um, you know, we just cannot afford people to go to work every day and, and, and hate their jobs, um, you know, or just doing it just for the sake of doing it, just to put a paycheck on their table. We just have to make quality conditions, whether it's harassment, whether it's the wage situation better for them. And again, if we we make lives better for those people. We make our communities better, our communities safer. There's a whole lot of things that transcends from those things. So at the end of the day, for me, it's like when I tell you we're laser focused on the next step, we're on. You know, we're on to the next movement to, to protect every single worker that works in those facilities from unfair for unfair advantage. They're being mm-hmm. treated unfairly, and we definitely want to step in and take advantage of that and make sure that they get organized and understand what it is to be part of a union, something that's not just an individual basis, but solidarity driven. Listen, I know all these guys on this call, you know, I know Greg, I, I know Carlos, we're brothers. We treat each other as such, you know, there's a mutual respect that comes along that line. So, you know, I love these guys, I, you know, I'll take a bullet for them at any point, you know, so this is what we talk about. You don't have that sense of camaraderie if you work in an environment that you don't know who your brothers and sisters are. So we, right now, we're about laser focus on changing that environment. Carlos, what do you see as the next steps? Well, I think, you know, before we were against the wall. Now we actually, with uh, Sean O'Brien, we took a step forward, right? So I think if we get a good contract, this is where the fight actually begins. This is where everything actually starts because now we have to enforce that contract. And like Greg said, everybody has to learn that contract. It doesn't matter if you negotiate a good contract if nobody's enforcing it. So we ha- all of us have to be educated, uh, educate ourselves more on the contract so we can be more militant, so we can have an understanding of what we fought for and what we're fighting for in our rights. So we have to fight and make the contract better, not worse. So we have to continue and continue on moving forward and forward and educating all the members so the contract gets stronger instead of weaker. And TDU will definitely help with that. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we're almost out of time, but before we go, how can people learn more about the work you're doing and help support it? TDU, baby. (laughs) 
Absolutely. You know, I, I, I would speak to that. I would say if anyone's interested in funding, if anyone's interested in strike, strike benefits, anything that relates to that, TDU has an educational component that's earmarked to that, where we spend a lot of money educating people of how to fight back, how to address the labor movement. We do a ton of calls, ton of trainings. There's always a convention every year that people can attend. So if you're interested in, in, in donating to TDU's efforts and getting on there, you can do that. You can uh, call the offices in New York and Michigan. You can write a blank check if you want to. I can assure you all that money will go to educate people and make their lives better. And the website yes. is? Website is tdu.org. And for listeners in the uh, Los Angeles area, there is also going to be a gathering and fundraiser for TDU on July 23rd, where Carlos will be uh, one of the featured speakers. So that's something that you can uh, hear more about uh, if you go to the TDU website as well. In any case, uh, I want to thank all of you for a wonderful discussion today. Uh, once again, we've been listening to uh, Carlos Silva, Greg Kerwood, and Carthy Boston, all our Teamster leaders and activists. Uh, members of Teamsters for Democratic Union, all active in building a strong contract campaign at UPS, which could be leading up to one of the most important strikes in U.S. history. I'm your host, Barry Eidland. I've been standing in for your regular host, Susie Weissman. Thank you for listening. And bye Thank for now. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Appreciate thanks it. all of you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.